Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome to Inside the Hive. I am your host, Nick Bilton. So we're going to take a break from Donald Trump. We're going to take a break from Mueller. We're going to take a break from 2020. And we're going to talk about something even more terrifying. And that is when software starts to kill people, which it turns out is already probably happening. So a few weeks ago, as you all probably know, Boeing 737 MAX, another one, actually crashed and killed hundreds of people. This is the second one in eight months. And it turns out now that we do believe, that investigators believe, that that was a result of a software bug. Uh, So I decided who better to have on the show than someone who has just written a book about all of the way software and coding is implemented in our lives and how it may go rogue one day and destroy us all. So my guest today is Clive Thompson. Now, Clive is a brilliant, brilliant writer. He's been writing for Wired and the New York Times Magazine and and tons of places like that for many, many years. He's written a couple of books. His last book was called Smarter Than You Think, How Technology is Changing Our Minds for the Better. And his new book, which just came out this week, is called Coders, The Making of a New Tribe and the Remaking of the World. And Clive has this ability to look at things, I always look at them with a very negative point of view. Clive does the complete opposite and is always able to look at the positive, but even he is worried about the world we're about to move into. So without further ado, Clive Thompson. Clive Thompson, welcome to the show. It's good to be here. Uh, So you and I met uh, about 12, 13 years ago, according to Flickr, uh, when we ended up at a – we slept in a a conference, was it an office on the floor together at a conference because we were told that there was going to be indoor camping, but it turned out it wasn't. You remember that? That It was uh, one of the least comfortable nights I've spent (laughs) in my life. Like they they said this was a a carpeted place you could camp. The carpet was about a micron thick, like it was painted onto cement or something like that. Yeah, I I totally agree. All right, so let's jump to it. You have a a new book out um, called Coders, which I am very, very excited to talk to you about. Coders, the making of a new tribe and the remaking of the world. And I want to jump into it actually by talking about something that's going on right now, uh, and that is the Boeing MAX crashes that have happened recently. So it turns out, we don't know completely what happened, but the theory by a lot of people, a lot of researchers, a lot of the news I've read is that it was a software bug that killed 357 people. And one of the things that I'm curious about is, is this the is this the first time that something like this has happened where software has killed people? And also, how do we stop something like this from happening again? I mean, we're, we're about to enter a world where software isn't just going to be controlling our phones and our iPads and our laptops. Um, it's going to be controlling the vehicles we're in all the time with driverless cars and planes that are automated and this, that, and the other. Uh, and should we be worried? So let's jump to the first part of that question, which is, is you know, how does something like this happen, and should we be worried that it could happen at a grander scale? Uh, we should definitely be worried. Um, you asked whether this was the first time that software had killed people en masse, like a, like a software bug had killed people en masse. As far as I can tell, having researched that, um, this seems to be uh, the first really big one. Uh, the only ones I could think of before were some software errors in radiology devices that delivered um, overly large doses of radiation. Um, but again, we're talking about a very small number of people. So this this is a really that's, serious that's, catastrophe. That's the story yeah. of the Theranac 25, right? Yes, exactly, exactly, right. Um, but, you know, and that was 20 years ago, right? Um, and that was essentially, the, uh, for listeners that don't know, that was, uh, you want to tell, tell the story very quickly? Sure, yeah. yeah. It was essentially a device that, um, you know, that, that was supposed to, 
you know, deliver a precision amount of radiation and because of a software error delivered uh, a lot more radiation than, than was intended, like wildly more. Uh, and it, you know, for, for the people that were, that were exposed to it, it was, it was pretty ruinous. So, yeah. so when you look at this moment right now, uh, when you have this device, uh, this, this sorry, the software, this technology that is essentially supposedly helping people pilots um, uh, with a plane, um, we're now about to enter a world where. Uh, mm-hmm. technology yeah. is going to be in our cars. It's going to be driverless cars. You're going to have robots delivering things, uh, drones, drones yeah. you name it. How do we, how do you avoid something like this from happening where you have software that could either be used maliciously or accidentally? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you make sure that people that are writing this stuff, because uh, it's not easy writing code. I mean, you talk about it in your no. book. Like it is a, yeah. it is. It's it's not only like speaking another language. It's just like inventing another language while you're speaking it. And um, <laughs> yeah. is, it, is there a world in which we can avoid these things from happening, or is the future going to be a whole lot more of these Boeing tragedies, uh, but on a much larger scale? Well, the scary thing about the Boeing thing is that uh, it theoretically is one of the most tightly regulated areas of software you know, that's already out there. Because wow. if, if you ask, how do we, how do we prevent uh, catastrophes as we rely more on code to physically move devices around like cars and drones, you know, how do you keep that from that code from, you know, having all sorts of bugs that, that cause collisions and accidents and damage and death? Well, you know, you'd say, you know, you got, you got to carefully regulate that code. You've got to have uh, government agencies that inspect it, that require, you know, X, Y, and Z, you know, levels of testing before something can be deployed, uh, that require, you know, uh, the person who's making the code to submit the, um, you know, the, the source code for review. But uh, even, and I would say, you know, up until now, the FAA has had a, a pretty a pretty good uh, regimen for, for yep. software checking. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's, it, there hasn't been a lot of accents like this. So it's sort of unsettling. That, that even in the part the, of yeah yeah even the part of government where they're where they're sort of trying to do their job you've you've had this problem um, it indicates that that uh, wow we had better as a better much as a society look carefully at this regulatory apparatus and make sure it's not being captured by the airlines themselves which is you know what sort of tends to happen you know, regulatory capture you know the 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 people making the stuff sort of you know lobby and get very cozy with the departments and eventually stuff gets sort of waved off. Um, you know that that uh, that's not going to fly. Uh, uh, no pun intended. Uh, with 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 software that's guiding cars, guiding robots going down the street, guiding drones. So, so when you talk to the people that you speak to for the book about you know AI and driverless cars and all this all this software, do, do they feel kind of are they worried? I mean, if I were if you told me, hey Nick, I want you to invent a device that that hundreds of millions of people are going to get into, and it's gonna and it's going to be your responsibility. It's going to travel at. at uh, tens of or hundreds of miles an hour, whatever it is, uh, and it's going to be your responsibility to make sure it works. I would be shitting myself. I would be like, "Oh my god, I'm going <laughs> to fucking kill everyone! Don't get in that device." Are these programmers who are kind of building the future? Are they worried about the future they're building, or that they may make mistakes in that process? Uh, the self-aware ones certainly are, right? And because are there I mean, how many self-aware ones? How many are self-aware there, ones are there? Okay, here's the thing. So the higher you go up the stack of the corporation, uh, the more self-awareness get the more self-awareness gets beaten out of you by corporate dictates, right? You know, it's like that old line. You know, never, never, uh, you never, never trust someone to. Uh, to understand a reality when their job requires them to misunderstand it. So, you know, at, at the absolute top of software companies, you know, you have people who are, who have the, 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 the you know, the sort of venture capitalist barking at them, the, you know, the, the uh, NASDAQ uh, barking at them, and they can sort of convince themselves that they're doing a good job because they have to push things along quickly. Farther down the stack, the worker bees, the people who are actually slinging the code, that's where, you know, you'll get people who can be kind of freaked out by the, the speed and pace and sometimes um, dodginess of what's happening. Like, you know, you talk about how code is complex. It's more than just complex. It's, it's like, it's, 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 it's layers deep, you know, like the code that, you know, I, I wrote, you know, some code earlier today to build a little scraper to take care of a task, a journalistic task. And I'm using someone else's code to help me do that. They're using someone else's code to help them do that. And we're just sort of hoping that there is not, you know, a big, a big error somewhere inside that. Um, 
And, you know, the more complexity you get, the easier it is for things to go wrong. And I think one of the things that, that we've seen that in, another, if you want to talk another area with serious uh, consequences for society, was voting machines. You know, so voting machines was, was another area where you had, you know, complicated code running these voting machines that was layers thick, you know, hastily made, and uh, you know, you know, has actually a, 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 a period of mess with some messed with some, you know, uh, some elections. So, so yeah, you know, how well do the people making it understand it? I think some of the people lower down the rungs are kind of freaking out, uh, and the people at the top are blind because their jobs require them to be sometimes. So- so you talk about in your book, you talk about the cult of efficiency that's that's in the in the world of of programming and so on, and it's kind of built into into the, I guess the people that do this, and 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 you at the same time the everything they've done up until now, you know, gaming and this that and the other, the consequences of of all of these things are they're not that big of a deal, you know, if your Xbox yeah, yeah, stops exactly. working. Yeah. Or you can't yeah. get Netflix, or even if your iPhone won't get on Twitter, or whatever. It's like, all right, great. They delete so some of your Instagram photos, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, it's really like, sucks. okay, yeah. n- no big deal. But when you look at the 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 future, it seems like every time we've tried to do something with with code, um, it, that is, no matter what it is, it's it's something has gone wrong. I mean, there's that great saying about um, hackers that. Uh, for companies, they say there are two kinds of companies, ones that have been hacked and the others that don't know that they have been hacked yet. And, <laughs> yes, exactly. And it seems like the, this language, the, 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 the software that people develop is never designed to be perfect or maybe they think it's perfect, but it's impossible to make it perfect and, and that it shouldn't be given the rights to do things that, look, humans are fucking idiots, especially when it comes to cars. We kill 34,000 people a year in America. 95% of accidents are, are a result of people looking in the mirror at their eyelashes or texting or Checking drunk phone. or whatever. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. Whatever yeah. it is. Like It's, it's like we are, we're not the greatest drivers. 1.2 million annually uh, around the globe die from car accidents. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we, but these are but it's also when you look at what the possibilities are of of, of programming uh, being put in charge of these things on a mass mass scale. It seems like I can't recall an instance where it actually worked properly. Um, even space shuttles, you know, every once in a while they blow up. Uh, um, even today, do you think that we should not allow? programming to run our lives especially with these kinds of devices that we're about to give them complete and uh out of control of yeah oh boy that that's a that's a that's a really <laughs> good question man i mean like um you know Look, you, you spent all this time with these people you know what these you know what they're doing yeah. you know what they're thinking like yeah do you, yeah how do you feel yeah i mean like here's the thing i am like I think you said, what you opened up with, I'm perfectly fine with a certain level of risk and code being kind of complicated, overcomplicated, unknowable, filled with bugs when it comes to stuff that is not super, you know, consequential. And, there, and there's a lot of that, right? Like in life, you know, does my text message get delivered on time? You know, if it's a little delayed, you know, you know, it's, it's not going to be a huge issue. Um, but, you know, anytime, like, I think I would draw the line here. Anytime that you are using software to make a major life decision for someone or anytime you're using software to kind of move stuff around, move atoms around in a way that could be seriously dangerous. Um, You know, we need to be very, very careful. And yes, I am, you know, kind of unsettled and freaked out by it. And, you know, we've been talking about planes crashing and cars crashing, but the truth is, you know, there's a huge amount of, you know, deep learning AI being deployed right now. And it's being used, you know, all over the place to speed up and automate decision making, right? You know, to basically say, you know, we humans can't make these, you know, 500 decisions in a, in a millisecond. So we'll get, we'll get the machines to do it. And that could be something, uh, you know, like fraud detection for banks, you know, or mm-hmm. that could be, you know, determining whether or not you get a mortgage, or that could be, you know, determining in Facebook whether or not X, Y, or Z post should be shoved upwards, 
you know, uh, and amplified because it seems to be quote unquote engaging, right? So, you know, you know, in each of these situations, I have different levels of unease, um, you know, that rises as the consequences rise because, you know, it, we talked about the, the difficulty of like code being, you know, being hard to figure out, complicated, filled with layers, potentially filled with bugs. That's even the code that, um, that humans have written line by line, you know, that theoretically could be known if you sort of stepped your way through it, you could figure it all out. The stuff that's being developed in AI, I sort of, I wrote a chapter on machine learning and that's where actually things get, you know, kind of maybe even a little more unsettling because this is, this is a type of, of software, a neural net, where you program the general parameters of it. Um, but then to get it to, you know, recognize cats or recognize good mortgage risks or recognize fraud or recognize, uh, you know, a, 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 a something that ought to be amplified. Is this the chapter about AlphaGo and cucumbers that you're Yeah, in? exactly. Yeah, AlphaGo and cucumbers. You train it. Like, so you're basically training it like a puppy. You're saying, you know, you know, do this. I give you a reward when, when it's done right and I punish you when it's done wrong. And eventually, after training it on, you know, one million cat photos, this thing can recognize a cat. But if you ask the person who trained it, the, the computer scientist, the coder who trained it, how is it doing that? You know, like, how is that neural net working? They, can't, they sort of shrug. They don't really know, right? Like, it's, it's, this, it's this complex stew of mathematics. It's very, very inscrutable. So this is another area where, you know, I, frankly, I get a little freaked out whenever I hear a system that's sort of unknowable, unknowable, even by the person who made it, being used to make big decisions. Um, and, of course, you know, that that ties us right into what you started off with, self-driving cars. They have a mountain of machine learning in them. And it appears as though, you know, some of the, some of the problems in this stuff not working quite right, you know, is, is related to some of the accidents, is related to some of the reasons why it's not yet fully trustworthy. And what's been really fascinating, actually, you know, you asked me, are people reckoning with this? Um, there was kind of a big reckoning a few months ago when the head of Waymo literally said at a conference, you know, after years of saying self-driving cars are here, you know, we're going to have these on the road. After, you know, after these accidents where people are getting hurt or killed, he sort of said, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure that we're going to have completely, you know, self-driving 100% autonomous cars all over the place, guys. Let, let's, let's, let's manage your expectations. That was a really fascinating moment. That was a moment when you saw someone, I think, recognizing that they had a little over-promised what all this code was going to be able to do and, and were reining things in a little bit. Well, so that's interesting you bring that up. So one of the things that I've found interesting is you know, I, you, I write about this stuff as you do, um, and some people react and say, thanks for writing that. I, I didn't know that. Some people react and say, you're a fucking idiot. What are you talking about? And some people right, say, right. like, I've thought this all along. Thanks. You know, you, you reinforce my belief. And the ones that call me an idiot are usually the ones that are working in the in the area that I am analyzing and talking about. Yeah. And so yeah. I've had people who work in the driverless car industry rant and rave at me about how I don't know what I'm talking about when I say that 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 um, driverless cars could be you know hacked and driven into people and or yeah. you know or there could be a software problem that could run someone over or something like that and that the net positive of the fact that 34,000 people in America and 1.2 million globally will not die as a result of car accidents far outweighs the cons yeah. of like yeah. a few people here or there I mean, am I? Uh, does that? What do you think of that? Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why, why are you getting so much pushback from the people building the stuff? Well, you know, like I said, you know, uh, uh, you know, above a certain pay scale, you know, I think, I think the people have really drunk the Kool Aid. They really believe this stuff is, um, is, is rock solid right now. Um, the, the the people who have, I think, sober doubts about it, who are building it, are either lower down the food chain or are a little separate from the capital markets, right? Like they're, you know, like if you really want to get the straight goods on machine learning, go and talk to someone like a serious computer scientist in like a research lab that does, that does, you know, visual learning or, or AI, because, you know, they don't, they don't have to front about how awesome this stuff is going to be to keep their stock price up or to keep their options for, 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 for IPOing up. Right. And they'll tell you, you know, yeah, man, this stuff works really, really well. This, this visual AI works really, really well, but we are, you know, still awfully far away from it being able to come close to like 
you know, trustworthy human style reasoning and, and, and whatnot. So you're, you're getting, I mean, I, I think what you're getting is, is something that I, I, I definitely see when I talk to people specifically in Silicon Valley, which is that there's this, there's this very powerful, you know, deformation of money and, and economic opportunity, right? You know, a lot of, a lot, a lot of young coders I would talk to, they, they start off very idealistic. You know, they, they love building things. They love making things happen. They love the idea that they could do something that would that would affect, you know, the entire planet. Yeah, you write um, about the hello world moment that everyone The hello loves. world moment, exactly. Yeah, when you, when, you, when you make something and you finally figured it out, you, you've got past all the bugs and the, and the unbelievable frustration of this thing not working, not working. And then it staggers to life and it's just this thrill, this narcotic thrill. They love that. They will spend their entire career chasing that over and over again. Um, and, you know, and that's a force that can really be harnessed for good, right? You know, like you can, you can, that's, that's a, that's a, that's a sort of a, like an energy, uh, a creative engineering energy that can be thrown at, at gnarly problems in society and make them better. But once it comes in contact with like, you know, capitalism and the capital markets, you know, you have, um, you, you, you really have a seductive force because, you know, capitalism and code go hand in glove together, right? Because the one thing computers are amazing at doing is taking something that is being done slowly or poorly and, and speeding it up, making it more efficient, and then, you know, sort of skimming that efficiency off as your profit, you know? And that, that is literally the, the trick of capitalism. Let's take something, torque it up a little bit, sell it to people, skim the, 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 the you know, the sort of the top rent office uh, and, and the top, uh, you know, efficiencies office profit. So it's really no surprise that you get these idealistic, you know, kids heading into this world where there's buckets of venture capital saying, you know, yeah, 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 whatever your idealism, we want you just to like marginally improve pizza delivery. We want you to, you know, sort of, um, you know, connect, you know, drivers and cars, you know, faster and faster together, regardless of how it actually changes the lives of the drivers. You know, we want to sort of create these weird gig economy experiences that are terrific for the consumers, but kind of miserable for the actual gig economy workers. You know, that's where that's where things really start to fly off the handle. You know, um, so, I think it's and, and that, that, that's why you're getting that's where you're getting this sort of this seemingly naive or willfully willfully naive um, you know pushback from these these folks is because you know they have millions in the game and they they will they will they will not see uh, the forest of the trees because of all the money that's there the 2024 election means this year is going to be chock full of drama and nail-biting suspense you deserve a politics and news podcast with expert analysis no spin no bs just trusted journalists talking about what you need to know i'm david plotz and each week on slate's political gab fest I sit down with the New York Times' Emily Bazelon and CBS News' John Dickerson to do just that. Join us as we unpack the latest in politics, news, and the courts. Listen to the Political Gab Fest every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. When you, uh, you in the book, you talk a lot about the personalities of the people that, that build these things. And, and I'm curious what they, can you tell us a little bit about like, what kind of person is it that wants to build some sort of AI? Uh, is it right. that they? Is it just fun for them? Is it that they they like the challenge? Yeah. Is it that they like to play God and to see what may come of it? <laughs> like, I mean, it's not like you're building, uh, you know, a, a house where you're like, I'm building this house and um, and I am going to allow people to live in this house and it will be their home right. and they will enjoy it. You're literally being like, all right, we're going to drop you know, a thousand two by fours and some paint and all these other things <laughs> from, from a 10,000 feet. And we're going to see what sculpture is made and it may kill some people and it may not, it may make someone a house. It may not like what kind of personality is it that does that? Do uh, so you mean specifically uh, AI or just kind of code in general? Like are I we talking more, about AI? I, 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 well, you can okay. answer them AI. both, but right. AI is very fascinating. Right, to let's me go for you, it. Different... Well, yes, AI is very different. You're right. And, and here's why. Um, it's because, you know, sort of traditional coding is like about making a clockwork apparatus. Like, you know, people, the people that get into, into that type of coding, they love making something that is, is going to work exactly the way they want it to. It's going to do exactly the things they asked it to with no surprises. And so they have this enormous feeling of kind of craft and like, you know, sort of Frankenstein, like it's a live moment when, when they finally get that thing to work. Um, 
the thing about AI people is that they're, they're a little bit different in that, um, like I said, you know, it's not just about the coding. It's about kind of training this thing to, to, to sort of recognize, you know, cats or to recognize, you know, cyclists and not hit them in your car. And, um, and it's a lot of math, you know, it's a lot more math. It's very, um, it's very probabilistic and statistical. And so it attracts a sort of a different, a different type of coder because, you know, they're dealing, you're dealing with a system that like, you know, if it's working really well is, is sort of recognizing cats 97% of the time, you know, and you're trying to nudge that percentage upwards, but you're never going to get to a hundred percent. You're just doing this training and training and trying to get it better. That is, that is actually a turnoff to an awful lot of coders because they got into this because they wanted to build the watch work that does exactly what uh, they tell it to every single time. So, all right. So, so who's willing to, you know, sort of go after that? that weird sort of ground of training and indeterminacy, you know, it's, it's definitely people that are, that are a little more math headedy. It is some people that really kind of are bit by the sci-fi bug when they're young, right? Like, you know, I, I talked to a lot of, you know, top AI people like, you know, Dave Ferrucci, who um, was a guy that made Watson, you know, for um, the thing that played Jeopardy. Uh, and, you know, like, uh, you know, you'll ask him, you know, so what's your inspiration? He's like, you know, the, the, the computer on, on Star Trek. I want to be able to talk to a, <laughs> a damn computer, you know. Uh, there's, there's re like, really is a, a big overlap, I find, in, in some of the AI stuff. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, with it's people. Just, just an aside, I mean, AI, I remember writing something about this years ago, but AI, sorry, um, science fiction has been, has predicted pretty much every everything we have i mean even the internet yeah, like a lot of yeah. people joke around that it's not but it's like you can find these on all these sci-fi novels going back yeah, you yeah. know hundreds exactly of years. exactly yeah. yeah and and so like there's there's really a sort of a dreamy sci-fi thing that, that that happens there frequently you know um uh which of course is you know both delightful and you know sort of unsettling right because you know <laughs> if you if you study the the source literature you'll know that the i those AI stories didn't always work out very well, right? You know, you know, how it's actually good. There's this funny moment. I was, um, I was hanging out with, um, Jan LeCun recently, who is like really one of the top AI talents in the world. He, he sort of invented the, the convolutional neural network. Um, and, and, you know, was one of the first people to get, you know, AI to recognize handwritten digits. There was uh, at some point in time in the nineties, like one tenth of all checks in the U S were being processed, with his AI, like looking and scanning the, the handwritten digits. So he's like a titanic figure. So we're meeting at the Facebook AI lab. He runs the lab. And on the wall, there's all these like pictures from, uh, you know, from images, you know, rendering images from the first uh, Stanley Kubrick 2001 Space Odyssey. And I'm kind of like, you know, Jan, is, is that like, is that like, you know, that's the, the ship where Hal went wild and killed everyone with AI, right? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a little ironic, obviously. So, so, so some of the people that, that I, a lot of people I found that were into this, you know, had some sort of imaginative pedigree where they liked the idea not just of the hello world of creating code, but the eerily lifelike idea that you're training something that's going to be able to learn on its own, like, like a Frankenstein, you know, sort of thing. Um, that's definitely there. They're math heads. They, um, it's hard stuff to do, right? Like it's, 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 it's a, it's a difficult type there, of programming. It, it, when I, when I think about social media and all the people that have created social media, and I, I know you don't want to speak negatively of people, but you can talk about it in a larger, sure. yeah. in a larger theme. But, um, is there, you know, a lot of the folks who created the social networks that we use today are people that have they have social anxiety. They they have a hard time sitting down yeah. with normal with people and having a beer and having a conversation unless they're yeah. talking about. I mean, this is Silicon Valley in in general, but unless they're talking about their own product that they make and all, which is all they can really ever obsessively talk about. But the result of that is that you have this system in place that, and they don't necessarily have a lot of empathy because they have that social anxiety and haven't spent a lot of time with yeah. you know, the human beings. And so the, the the net result of that is um, these platforms that don't have empathy built into them that, that the human race is using to have conversations, and as a result, everyone's really mean. It's it's the part of the result of that is because of anonymity and and and, and, and no mm -hmm. empathy yeah. and this that and the other. The people that are building AI, did they? Are they also kind of of that ilk where there's like a part yeah. that's missing a little bit and 
and is what what are the potential net results of that? I mean, what are the 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 really bad negatives that you could possibly foresee happening as a result sure. of their personalities? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that uh, you, you sort of what you've said is very true, and I heard the, I heard earfuls of this from from coders themselves. They'd be like, you know, look, the truth is, you know. Uh, a, a lot of us got into this because we're a little awkward and we prefer to be alone. Uh, we find it annoying or, you know, uh, you know, sort of a grind to have to deal with all these messy, weird humans. And so we found a job that let us, you know, talk to a rational machine all day long. And, um, and, and you know, in their ideal life, they just get left alone to sling their code. Uh, and as you point out, you know, you build a social network uh based on the proclivities of people who don't understand people very well. And you get, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, who, whose opening, <laughs> whose early statements were like, I just want to improve information flows. Like he was, like he was sort of thinking in this kind of almost hilariously mechanic-like way of the connection between people just as raw information. Like he, he, wasn't, he wasn't really thinking of them, you know, as like, you know, uh, love, friendship, anger, whatnot. It was just, you know, just you know, packets of information routing from node to node, uh, and so you can sort of see how that might lead you to create a social network that doesn't really understand that you know certain that inciting certain types of emotions like rage, you know, like um, you know, like partisan rancor is going to have big big civic problems. Um, and you know, the funny thing is, you ask about you know, you know, is this a problem also in the world of AI? Um, you know, I think, you know, uh, a, certainly a, a significant subset of the people in, in AI, you know, have exactly the same proclivities, you know, uh, you know, they would tell me, you know, yeah, again, I'm a, I'm a sort of an isolated nerd. And that's kind of why I got into this. Um, the, really, one of the one of the problems we have actually with AI is that you only need a small number of people to really nail it. Mm -hmm. And they become tools for everyone else to use, right? So, you know, so Google produces TensorFlow. And TensorFlow is now a tool that can do, um, you know, visual recognition, speech recognition, any type of pattern recognition you needed to do. It can do in the hands of people that are not experts at AI. They're just regular coders, right? And they want to build a system. And they, they want to have a little bit of AI in that system. So they sort of grab TensorFlow and they use it. So really in many ways what I think actually we're seeing the, the kind of the freaky thing about AI is that it's getting tucked into all these different systems that can be built with some of the blindnesses that you've, that you've talked about, right? You know, I mean, e even when you think about all the ranking systems of YouTube or, um, you know, or, or Facebook or even smaller social networks or tools, they're often built on this kind of open source AI that they got from places like Facebook or places uh, like, like, like Google. And now they're just using that as yet another tool to sort of create these fast-paced information flow, you know, high-throughput areas that they have not necessarily thought very carefully about the human dimensions of. You know, everything that we've lived with, uh, when you have one of these feeds that just starts suddenly producing Pizzagate conspiracies, you know, some of that is literally like AI at work, right? You know, um, when you have a bunch of, you know, coders and designers that are not really fluent in thinking about the implications of, of how weird humanity can be, you know, they'll, they'll come up with a fairly naive hypothesis, which is like, hey, if, if something, people are already talking about something, it must be praiseworthy, it must be interesting. And so, you know, they set about training their TensorFlow model to like recognize and amplify that stuff. And great. So now we've got, you know, AI that was developed by some leading minds, maybe of some who, maybe some of whom had you know deep ethical thoughts about this, but it doesn't matter because it's now being deployed by anyone who just wants to create a system that sort of you know in that Zuckerberg Zuckerbergian sense speeds up information flow, and you know you get Pizzagate because they don't stop to think that you know something that any psychology student or any sociologist or any anthropologist or any student of history could tell you, which is that just because something is popular doesn't mean that it's actually important, good, or, or you know, salubrious to society, right? You know, uh, um, plenty mm. of nutjob conspiracy theories are incredibly compelling. They're incredibly engaging. Oh, yeah. If you're not thinking, if you're not thinking about, <laughs> about what society is like, you're going you're gonna to use all this AI, you're going to use all your coding smarts just to create these out-of-control machines. Yep. Yeah. No, it's, it's, um, are you scared? I'm scared. I'm a little nervous. <laughs> I'm a little well, terrified. I mean, like, I mean, it's like, you see, 
you you just see like we have a limited amount of technology yeah. in play right now and you the shit i mean you just said conspiracy theories i mm-hmm. was in an uber i mean everyone has a story but this guy was telling me that that the you know if you look at you there's he was telling me all the youtube videos about the fact that about QAnon and about the fact yeah, that, sure. that Dave Chappelle, he literally pulled over and showed me a video of Dave Chappelle before and after he was made into a robot by the FBI. And he was talking about how his wrists are thicker and, yeah. and all the, like, that's just like yeah. one tiny, tiny, tiny little thing. That's a repercussion of this thing that we have built that we don't actually know how to yeah. control. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Are you worried about? Yes. What? Uh, so the short answer is, um, I'm deeply worried. Um, the because I'm a I, I, I'm a guy who tries to find where the hope lies, you know, not just to, not not just what to run away from, but what what to run towards. Yeah. Um, I, I I I think there are some you know kind of uh, cool things going on in the world of code that we should pay attention to and amplify and encourage. Um, one of them is that there has been this quite remarkable uprising uh, amongst the actual worker bees, the actual coders and designers uh, at very large corporations like Microsoft and Google in the last year. Um, you know, there was moments when when the, the actual, you know, coders, people slinging the code said, wait a minute, I do not agree with the ethical direction of, of the company I work for, right? So with Google, it was when a bunch of coders and designers, managers realized that, that Google was, you know, uh, you know, working on this contract, ideally hoping to scale it up to be like a billions of dollars contract to do AI for the military, right? You know, to mm-hmm. help target and, you know, probably kill people abroad. And once this got out, you had thousands of Google folks uh, signing a petition like in, in, a, in a couple of days, a couple of, I think maybe a week, it grew to like several thousand people. And you also had walkouts, global walkouts saying, you know, we won't stand for this over... At Microsoft, you had uh, you had a, a very large petition signed by engineers, designers, saying, you know, we protest the fact that the company we work for is doing contract work for ICE because we don't want to use our coderly and designerly skills to speed up and make more efficient the way ICE deports and targets migrants. Right um, now, this is incredibly interesting, right? Because this is this is kind of a new thing. You did not see these sort of mass walkouts, these mass demonstrations in previous generations of coders. Uh, and I think it's I, I think I think what's happened is they've realized that they're some of the few people that have actual sway uh, and actual influence and leverage over the ethical and moral direction of these large companies. You know, this one of them, uh, you know, one of the people that, that literally resigned from Google, uh, he, he was a front-end developer, um, JavaScript developer. He'd worked in, like, I think he'd worked in the Chrome browser. He said to me, you know, you know, this is, you know, all these companies pride themselves on being, like, you know, talent-based and trying to constantly find the best coders and the best engineers and the best designers and hire them. And they're competing with each other, you know, poaching from Microsoft, poaches from Facebook, and Facebook poaches from Google. So their one vulnerability is they have to keep those core employees happy, right? Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, I feel an ethical responsibility because I know that I have options and because I could go somewhere else. Uh, I feel that I should be speaking up. And he wasn't alone. You know, he had thousands of people doing that. So this is, this is really interesting. It, you know, Google does not care if you or I stop using Gmail. And Microsoft doesn't really care if you or I stop using Microsoft Office. And Facebook doesn't care if you or I sign off. But if they're rank-and-file developers who they rely on and who they compete for start raising a fuss, that has a really interesting impact. So I would keep, I would keep our eyes on that as one, one very interesting development. That's pretty, no, it's fascinating. I think uh, it's good. It's because I'm usually like Mr. Pessimist on here and it's nice yeah. to, to, and I've always, you've always been Mr. Optimist and I think that it's <laughs> nice to, no, you have, you always approach it from this yeah. like positive, like, oh, we're not going to kill ourselves with those nuclear bombs. Yeah. Uh, well, and I'm like, but, you know, speak, but nu- nuclear bomb is actually an interesting thing to raise here because, you know, one of the things that a computer scientist said to me, he'd written this piece and he'd said, you know, part of, the, part of, part of what's happened or part of the thing that hasn't happened yet with computer science is computer science hasn't had its atom bomb moment, right? You know, he said, you know, coders and computer science right now are a little bit like physicists before the Second World War. 
Uh, the first half of the 20th century, physicists were very much just like, you know, puzzle solvers, like kind of in there it, with that same sort of hello world, like delight in just solving how physics worked and how the atom worked, the mysteries of, of the atomic world. And it wasn't until all their work resulted in, in just thousands of people dying with the atom bomb that they began to realize that their skills and, and all their talent um, had serious moral and ethical implications. And, and so physics kind of went through a moral reckoning to the point where, like, uh, in the 80s, when uh, universities were divesting from, uh, when there was pressure to divest universities from, uh, you know, racist South, South African uh, um, uh, companies, when South Africa was apartheid, the students would go to the faculty and say, hey, you know, English department, you know, sociology department, you know, um, math department, will you support us? And most of the time, they didn't get anything. And the one department over and over again, from campus to campus, that would support the students were physicists. And it wasn't because they were better people, but they had had a moral reckoning uh, with the Second World War that, that none of those other departments had had. And so the question this computer scientist said is, what will be the moment like that for coders and for developers who have a similarly catalytic power right now? Um, I would not necessarily pretend that these walkouts we're seeing are um, exactly that moment, but it is very interesting to me that that's happening. Well, I just, it's, it's a fascinating point, and I, I, I just hope that that moment is not something catastrophic on a large scale. Um, yes, exactly. I mean, like, <clears throat> like you, know, you know, you don't want a Hiroshima of software, right? I mean, this comes back to what you and I first started talking about, um, which is that we saw this disaster of a plane, you know, f you know uh, killing a, lot, a bunch of people because of badly engineered software, badly uh, regulated software. I don't want... I don't want to see tens of thousands of people um, or uh, societies torn further asunder than they've already been before we get that moral reckoning. Um, I'd like to push it along as, as, as fast as we can. Sort of one of the reasons why I wrote the book, right? You know, I was, I was hoping not just to open the eyes of um, the people who rely on the software, but I was kind of interested in, in showing a little bit of a mirror to the people who work inside the industry themselves. Um, okay, so we have a few minutes left because you've got to run off to give a fancy talk at a fancy place about your fancy book. But I have a couple <laughs> of last questions for you. What, one, what was like the, the, the moment? I've written books too and, and I have these moments. There's always this moment that I either, that's like this holy shit moment. Like it doesn't, it's not, sometimes not a big thing, but it's just a holy yeah. shit moment for me. Or it's a moment that I think back to a lot years later what is the what is the moment in your book that um, that you think about a lot, or that was the kind of the big wow moment for you? You know, it, it's it, it uh, there's a lot of them, frankly, uh, because you know, so many that so many of the people were so interesting and, and so and so kind of weird. Um, I actually think uh, one of them was when I interviewed one of the earliest coders into this whole crazy field, um, a woman named Mary Ellen Wilkies. And she was just telling me her story. And she's, she's like, I guess in her 80s now. Um, but she was talking about kind of how she, how she sort of fell into programming because it was, you know, the 1950s. And she wanted to be a trial lawyer, but it was too sexist to be a trial lawyer back then. Everyone was like, you know, it's hmm. not going to happen. So she said, okay, well, um, what else could I do? And there was this weird new thing called the computer happening. So she literally, you know, told her parents, you know, on the day of my graduation, you know, from my BA, you know, in philosophy, you know, pick me up in your car and you're going to drive me to MIT. And she marches into the um, employment office and she, uh, and she says, okay, do you need coders? And they're like, yeah, um, can you solve this basic logic puzzle? You know, and she could, and they hired her. And I was, and she went on to discover that she had this absolute passion for it, that she had this incredible skill for it. Um, and it sort of captured for me a couple things. You know, one is that, wow, the history of coding is a lot more complicated than people thought it was. B, you know, these hello world moments go right back to the beginning of the craft. Um, uh, but C, she also got chased out of the, not really chased out of the industry, but she left the industry because she wanted to go and be a lawyer. And she watched it turn into, you know, kind of more this, this bro thing, you know, a couple decades later, 
you know, she worked on really interesting hard problems and it, she turns around and there's bros, you know, pre, you know, sort of doing marginally improved uh, pizza delivery. So it was, it was, it, I often, you know, think about her and we still talk, we're, you know, we're friends now because it is, it's, it's such a, it's such a reminder to me of the kind of hope and promise of the industry that's still there, but, you know, needs to be recovered. Um, that was one, that, that was one story. The other one is very short and uh, it, it's just, a, it's just sort of a flip one that I'll give you. Um, which is that uh, um, I, uh, uh, you know, I learned, I learned, I had to start learning a lot more coding as I wrote this book. Mm-hmm. And so I started writing software for myself to sol- solve my own weird problems, right? Um, and uh, yeah, actually just the other day, I decided I was, I, I, I checked a couple nervously a couple times my Amazon sales rankings, which is what you do when you have a book. You know, you're like, yeah, hey, is anyone reading this book? You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I decided, okay, wait a minute, this is crazy. This is crazy. I'm doing this too much. This is like, you know, psychologically harmful. Um, and hey, I know, I know enough programming now that I can get a, a computer to do this for me. And so I just wrote a scraper that would go in and scrape that information off the off the page, format it into a text, and text me four times a day, so I don't have to think about it at all. And the first time it fired, like just the other day, I was like, "Oh my god, yeah, this is this is exactly the sort of you know crazy delight, <laughs> but but weirdness that yeah. like characterizes all the people I spoke to in my book." I sort of realized, "Oh my god, I guess I, I'm sort of I'm I've been you infected. have become them it's, it's, <laughs> exactly." It's like, it's yeah. the, it's the saying be careful be careful when hunting monsters lest one becomes one you know it's yes like, precisely yeah yeah so uh, so you know, check check in with me in in a year uh, um, you you uh, and could I can see how far I've fallen you yeah. could sell that scraper for a lot of money because every single person who writes a book I'm I'm convinced that like ten percent or more of all of the traffic that goes to Amazon is people checking their sales ranking or the yeah, comments yeah. It don't read the comments. Don't read the comments. Don't read the comments. Yeah, no, don't exactly. Don't feed the right, so, controls. Don't read the comments. Yeah. So, last question. I'm going to kind of go out there with this one, uh, just for fun, because you know why not. So, you, uh, I know you play a lot of video games, um, and um, and we've seen in our lifetimes. I, you know, I grew up playing uh, Nintendos and Segas, and now there's Xboxes and there and there's VR and there's all these things. And one of the things that a lot of people in Silicon Valley. Uh, believe will happen is eventually that we will kind of get to the point where we can we can put on a VR headset that looks indistinguishable from reality and kind of enter a simulation and that we may even live in a simulation ourselves and, and so on. Do you, um, and I'm not going to ask you if you think we live in a simulation unless you want to answer that question, <laughs> but the question I think is, is, is what what will be the implication in society when we have technology that is indistinguishable from reality and uh, have you thought about that at all? Is that something that you've kind yeah. of come across in, in, yeah, in your yeah. discussions? Um, not too much with this book, but definitely with other things, that other writing that I've done. Um, uh, I, I sort of opted to avoid the whole singularity uh, stuff in the book because it, it, it's, it's a, it, feels, it felt like a sufficiently weird separate topic um, uh, that was not necessarily a concern of the average JavaScript coder, you know, working for your bank down the street. Yeah. It's, it's a mania of a certain set of Silicon Valley people. Nonetheless, I have talked a lot about this in writings about VR because it's, it's an active discussion in VR people since, they're, since they're, they're actively trying to push at the limits of reality, hyper-reality, and what's knowable, um, that's where it really comes up. And uh, so do I think, you know, there's going to be this moment when the, the hyper-real is so powerful that it exerts this kind of weird influence and it's kind of hard to get away from? Um, I don't think so. You know, like, I, I, I could huh. be wrong. I could be wrong. But but it feels like it feels like this is a long a long-standing, you know, concern that we all have, I certainly have, uh, about mediation and the idea that there's going to be a seductive form of media that we that we can't really pull ourselves out of, you know, like photography to a certain extent, you know, people will, were worried this is going to kill, you know, painting. Why would you paint anything after you have like a photograph? Well, it's true that it killed realistic painting, but what happened is, you know, Picasso and all those other ones just the modernists just said, all right, screw it, we're we're going to find a new representation of reality that we're going to do. Uh, that avoids trying to compete on this level. And I sort of feel like that's probably what'll happen. We're definitely going to get increasingly realistic, hyper-real VR. But in a weird way, I suspect it might actually cause us to be sort of almost shoulder-shrugging, huh, 
well, we did that. That's kind of interesting. That's not actually satisfying on a human level. Um, you know, almost in the same way that video games themselves got more and more and more realistic. And there was this, you, you know, we're old enough to remember like the, the sort of wars over like faster, better graphics in the 90s and early aughts. And then the weird thing that happened is people started bringing back kind of cartoony aesthetics. And mm-hmm. I think it's because they, they, they realized that that push towards super realism isn't very artistically or aesthetically or existentially interesting. We've already got reality, right? So I, so I do think we're going to get like, like mind-blowingly weird, weirdly realistic uh, um, stuff going on. But I am not convinced that it will um, be as much of a sweeping, sweeping in thing. I mean, you, you know, <laughs> if you wanted a hyper reality that we're already swallowed into, it would be the newsfeed, right? You know, like you, you don't even need goggles for that. It's just, it's just like a, it's an alternate re- reality universe, and it's just using pixels. So that, that's kind of my thinking on that. I could be wrong, but that's what no. I, I think it's, I think it's a really smart way of thinking about it. I think you know, you, um, you know, you're completely right about there was a period in time when we, where technology from a design aesthetic was people were trying to go for to build things that looked just like um the real world so you had like this you had these file systems that looked like essentially i remember remember the icons of the first iphone for example where oh my God, you know, yeah, yeah. they're they, trying they're, so hard to look like leather stitching and stuff like that yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. and 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 then you had this research and everything was 3d and and shaped and <laughs> and and so on and then you had you know skeuomorphism as they as they call it and and yes. then you had this moment where all of a sudden everything became flat and you had these games that were flat design and microsoft yep. was doing everything with flat squares and and yeah. uh, and and dots and and all those games, and I think that um, that it's interesting. We we got to the thing at the moment of reality, and then we decided, hey, we we don't want that. We want something. Yeah, yeah. Something the thing different. about us humans, in a weird way, uh, one of our curses and one of our saving graces is that we get bored easily, right? You know, it's like <laughs> hey, show me something new. So like yeah. when we've got unrealistic stuff, bring on some crazy realism. Once we get that, we're like, yeah, I want yeah, some. I, I want some you know, schematic, weird, hallucinogenic stuff. Like we're just, you know, we're constantly sitting there, you know, you know, tapping our toes and going, you know, what have you done for me lately? Give something new um yeah. it's it, it's 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 uh it, it's gr- it's good and it's bad it causes us to over consume and it causes us to not sit still yeah well clive this has been a fascinating conversation the book is fascinating as well it is coders the making of a new tribe and the remaking of the world go and buy a copy so that clive gets a text message that makes him happy clive thompson thank you <laughs> thanks so much i had, I had fun Thanks to my guest this week, Clive Thompson. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Dalton. You can find these on applepodcastradio.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And I will see you all next week. And I promise we will stay away from Donald Trump for a little while. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts.